Hello and welcome back to The Anecdotalist, Episode 5. My name is Paul Packard, and with me today, as always, my co-host, Jason McKinney. How's everybody doing? So, we made it. Uh, this is Episode 5 of The Anecdotalist. This is our, our first regularly scheduled episode. And I, I have to say, I'm excited to get onto a schedule. Uh, the first four episodes were a huge learning experience, and now that we kind of know what we're doing, I feel like we can get into a groove here. It was months in the making. I mean, I, I think it was a total of about six months. We started back in July with that first idea of a podcast, um, that first episode that I recorded and sent to Jason. And so to get to this point now, to release our first four, uh, I feel really good about now that we have a schedule going. And, and also just now that we actually have a podcast listed on all the major sites, it, ha- it has a little bit of a, it adds excitement, I think, to the podcasting part of this. Yeah, man, it's been rough trying to trying to clear out the background noises and everything. It's really tough. And the technology, it's probably a great time to make a podcast because I think five years ago, we would have had a really hard time putting together something like this, just with us both living in different states. But the quality of like the headphones that we have and the mic that we have, the additional echo cancellation that's involved. There, I think the first four, there are some moments <laughs> they have their their quality, but getting them completed and, and released was a huge accomplishment for us. One thing also is that the goal that we have, or the original goal was to have an episode every other week, so every two weeks. What we've figured out is that I think that's still going to be our game plan, but some of these topics are big topics, and they're becoming two-parters. Like today, this episode, episode five, is part one of a two-part series. And I think when we have two-parters, we can release those back-to-back weeks because we have all the the information. I've done all the research. I've written most of the outline for part two already. So all that extra that has to go into it to make an episode is mostly done. So I think what we're going to do, for example, today, we have this episode launching the first Friday in February. The second Friday in February, we'll have part two. Then we'll have one week gap, and then we'll have another episode after that. So I think the game plan here is to continue to try to do every other week. But if there's a big enough episode where it becomes a multi-parter, we'll release those in back-to-back weeks. Yeah, that sounds good, man. I mean, it also kind of gives us a break from the constant. I mean, sitting here for an hour can be can be difficult when you've got wives and kids walking in on you every few minutes to check on you. It's definitely tough to get to carve out some time in the day, um, but it's really fun. It's a it's our project for me. I go back and forth. One moment I'm like, this is amazing. We have a podcast. And the next moment I'm like, oh my gosh, we have a podcast. <laughs> it's very nerve wracking in some ways, but it's also very exciting and very fun because there isn't a commitment involved. But there's also, once we sit down and do this part of it, once we're like going through the outline and talking to each other and I'm telling you a story, I just feel, I, I enjoy it. It's a lot of excitement. And then the editing isn't always that fun, <laughs> but you get comfortable, you get used to it. And then actually posting episodes is, is amazing. So with all that said, we're going to go ahead and we're going to jump into today's episode. Yeah, so, you know, Paul does all the writing and all the um, all the editing. All I have to do is sit back and listen to a story and uh, interrupt when I feel like I need to interrupt. So my, my life's pretty easy over here. I'm enjoying every second of this. Today we're talking about the men who escaped Alcatraz. <laughs> I'll do my best to keep my Clint Eastwood impressions to a minimum. Tonight in front of me is my E.H. Taylor um, it's always nice to have a, a glass of, of bourbon while we do these. It makes it that much easier. I know, Jason, you're enjoying your coffee over there, I'm guessing. Uh, actually, I'm going to start a new tradition. I am adding some Irish creamer to my drink. I went to um, 
I went to the liquor, liquor store tonight to look for some St. Bernadine's, um, which is amazing Irish creamer, but I couldn't find any. So I'm trying something new called um, Bradley's. And it's not bad. So, Jason, I don't know if you did this on purpose or not. But when I visited San Francisco five years ago, I went to a bar called the Buena Vista at Fisherman's Wharf. It's like right across from Alcatraz. They still make Irish coffee like they did 100 years ago. It's amazing. You have to go sometime. Look it up online. There's videos of it. But you telling me that you're putting Irish coffee, that you're making Irish coffee, it reminded me. That's so funny because we're talking about Alcatraz across the street in San Francisco. You like took me way back to the Buena Vista at the Fisherman's Wharf. And that same night as when I first saw Alcatraz in person. That's so unintended because, I mean, you know, I drink Irish creamer. You know, that's like one of my favorite drinks. So it's kind of a thing that I've always liked. So unintended, but that's awesome. Is it called Irish creamer or is it just called Irish coffee? I, think it's, I mean, I use Irish creamer in my coffee. Oh. Okay. It's liquor and, and creamer, which is kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, that's kind of a, I feel like it make your tummy hurt. All right, so Jason, are you ready? I am, I am. Okay, here we go. On June 12, 1962, early morning roll call was performed in B Block at Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. Three men didn't stand for call. Frank Morris, John Anglin, and his brother Clarence Anglin. A guard approached the cell of Frank Morris, asleep in his bed. He reached past the metal bars and pushed on his head. A plaster dummy head, made with human hair and flesh-toned paint, rolled onto the floor. The men weren't on B-Block. The FBI, the Coast Guard, and the Bureau of Prison Authorities began their search. Makeshift paddles, bits of rubber, inner tube, and a homemade life vest were recovered from the water, but officially... Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin were never seen again. Okay, so tonight we're getting into one of my favorite mysteries. What's more fun than talking about the guys who escaped Alcatraz? Nickname The Rock, the maximum security prison that was inescapable. Or was it? I know you can't see me, Jason, but I'm doing my Clint Eastwood signature grimace. I need a hand-rolled cigarette to go with it. <laughs> Dude, it's funny that you mentioned that. I just got some spare Cubans from San Juan. Um, Cuban cigars. Uh, I should have mailed you one so we could we could smoke one during this episode. Go all Clint Eastwood. Yeah, that would be that would be great. I don't. Did you watch? Did you ever see Escape from Alcatraz? No, I have not. Okay. Yeah, when I was younger, we watched a lot of Clint Eastwood. We watched the old movies and shows, but yeah, Escape from Alcatraz was based on these guys who escaped, and it was released like in like, like 1972, I think. It basically is this story. And I remember watching that as a kid and being like, these guys, they escaped this, this prison. It, it was the, the coolest thing. And so now that we have a podcast and we're talking unsolved mysteries, we're talking, of course, ghosts and aliens. And I was like, I'm going to do an episode on the guys that escaped Alcatraz. And what's amazing is of course, when you watch a movie, 
it's like very narrow and very like siloed into like very specific things. There's only so much you can fit into like an hour and a half, two hour movie. Um, but actually reading and doing all the research, there's a lot of things here that I thought were really interesting. I'm glad I'm glad I did this. I feel like an expert a little bit on the guys that escaped Alcatraz. And there's a lot more here than than just the those original guys. There were a bunch of other escape attempts, and we're going to go through those too, which I think kind of paints the picture of this place. The, this penitentiary was somewhere that was expected to be, or was assumed to be, inescapable. So many people had tried and failed prior to these guys. And we actually don't even know if these guys succeeded because, you know, one of the theories is they all, they drowned. We're still here talking about it because we don't really know. They could have made it off, off the island. Yeah. So it sounds like they pretty much just put like a building on an island. That's pretty much, you know, like you said, inescapable. And if you do try to escape, you're pretty much going to die. So it's either death or stay where you're at. Yeah. And we're going to get into what, what that looks like here in a second. So what I want to do first, and what's kind of become a rhythm of sorts, I want to first talk about the history of Alcatraz. So leading up to the escape in 1962, uh, we're going to touch on all that. We're going to talk about the escape in this episode. Again, there's so much here that once we finish with the escape, we'll talk about the rest in part two. We're going to talk about a timeline of events, mostly firsthand information from Alan West, uh, who was the fourth inmate who was supposed to be on the raft with the escapees. But unfortunately for him, he didn't make it out of the cell in time. So first, it was basically a 22-acre seabird habitat with very little like vegetation. It's located in the San Francisco Bay. It was first explored in 1775 by Spanish naval officer Lieutenant Juan de Ayla. I don't even know if I said that right, but I tried. Who named the rock Isla de las Acatraces. Again, who knows if that's right. And uh, I apologize. I have a very straight up Midwest accent. Um, but the English translation is Isle of the Pelicans. In 1849, the U.S. government purchased this island. And in 1854, the first West Coast lighthouse was installed on Alcatraz Island. So with a lighthouse and some other buildings, the first permanent army detachment was stationed there in 1859. But by many accounts, the island was pretty miserable and inhospitable. What better place than to stick military prisoners? So at one point, it hosted 19 Hopi Indians and American soldiers fighting in the Philippines who joined the Filipino cause. In 1907, it was the Pacific branch of the U.S. military prison. So finally, in 1934, it became a federal prison, hosting civilian prisoners considered to be too dangerous. These prisoners included Robert Stroud, nicknamed Machine Gun Kelly, not the rapper, Al Capone, and the Birdman of Alcatraz, just to name a few. Um, that's been a prison for over 130 years. So it was a prison in 1930, but it, I believe it closed down um, sometime in the late 60s, early 70s. Now you can do like tours of it. So as always, I'll have sources in the show notes. I, I read through quite a few articles and watched clips from shows. And it's funny too, because some of this I'm actually pulling from memory. And I'm there was an episode of a show that I watched with my dad when I was probably... 13 years old, so like 28 years ago. And I couldn't find that episode that I watched with him, but some of that's going to come into play too. So I'm sorry I don't have that source. That's just a 28-year-old memory that I have that I'll bring up. Um, I also read the book Escaping Alcatraz, The Untold Story 
of the greatest prison break in American history by Michael Eslinger and David Widner. And they did an amazing job compiling lots of information. And I suggest reading the book. They have way more insight and details. There's just no way to talk about all the things they covered. Also, I know it's fiction, but based on a true story, but Escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood, it's a classic. And watching that as a kid really got me excited about prison breaks. And I, I suggest if you enjoy this episode, go watch it. I know it's old. I know it's Clint Eastwood, 1972. It's a phenomenal Clint Eastwood movie. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch this. I love Clint Eastwood and I love old stuff. So I think this would be really interesting. It's probably what I'll be doing after this podcast. By the way, you said 28 years ago, didn't you? Yeah, that maths out, bro. Oh, wait, oh, shoot, you're right. 18 <laughs> years ago. What did you say you were drinking again? Uh, E.H. Taylor, small bash. It's good. <laughs> Man, I'm going to have to get me some of this stuff. I had a couple beers before this, too, so that's probably the issue. <laughs> so, like I said before, these guys weren't the first ones who tried to make an escape from Alcatraz. And they weren't the last, either. A lot of prisoners at Alcatraz were there because they were deemed too violent or had made escape attempts in the past. I want to take a moment before we talk about the meat of the story to talk about the guys who tried and failed to escape. So a total of 36 men attempted to escape the rock. 23 were captured, 6 were killed in the act, 2 were executed, and 2 drowned. The final three, Frank Morris, John England, and Clarence England, were never seen again. Well, officially, they were never seen again. So what was the time frame of this um, escape attempts? I think it was over the course of about 30 years or so. So pretty much right after they opened Alcatraz, people started trying to escape. And then right up to the point where they closed it, people were still trying to escape. Okay, interesting. And what about these executions? You said two were executed? Yeah, so the two who were executed were sent to the gas chamber for the death of a correctional officer during the Battle of Alcatraz, which is one of the escape stories we'll talk about here in a moment. Oh, is that a ghost story? I don't think they, maybe they became ghosts. I don't know. People have died at Alcatraz. (laughs) There might be some ghosts floating around. That's not the type of episode we're working on right now. So there are 14 attempts in total. And I I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time talking about these here because I don't, I want to talk about the unsolved mystery, but it is worth noting that the attempt by Morris and the Anglin brothers were preceded by many others and, and played a significant role in how these three men went about making their own escape. So the first escape attempt was on April 27, 1936, a man by the name of Joe Bowers, burning trash in the incinerator, which was his job. When he began climbing the fence on the edge of the island, he refused to come down and was shot. So he fell about 50 to 100 feet to his death. So the next attempt happened in December of 1937. Two men named Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe filed their way through iron bars on a window in the mat shop they worked in. They hopped through the window, jumped into the San Francisco Bay, and it was during a pretty bad storm, and they were never seen again. But without a raft or a boat, plus the storm, the assumption is they drowned and they were carried out to sea. So I guess that's why uh, the other three guys decided that maybe a life jacket was important. Exactly. There's a lot of lessons learned here. And I think that's I think that's why it's so important to talk about these first guys, because without these other escape attempts, maybe they would be smart enough to make that stuff. But knowing that people drowned and it wasn't just these guys, but knowing that that was a that was a possibility, gave them a roadmap of how to make make it off the rock. After that, in May of 1938, 
we have James Limerick, Jimmy Lucas, and Rufus Franklin. <laughs> Those are like some old school names, huh? <laughs> Men working in the woodworking shop. They attacked Royal Klein, a guard, killing him. They then climbed the roof tower to disarm the guard, Harold Seitz. Unlike Royal, was armed. He shot Limerick and Lucas. Limerick died. Lucas and Franklin received life in prison for the murder of Royal Klein. You know, you mentioned the other names being old, but Royal Klein? Yeah, that's an old name, too. That's a wild. Royal is a very interesting name. In January of 1939, five men saw through flat iron bars and made their way down to the shoreline. When the guards caught up to them, three of them surrendered. William Martin, Henry Young, and Rufus McCain. The other two were shot when they refused to surrender. Doc Barker died from the gunshot wound. Dale Stamphill was captured. So remember that name. Remember Doc Barker. Doc Barker. That's hard to forget. Yeah, he his, he comes up later. So we have two escape attempts in 1941. One in September and one in April. In April of 1941, four inmates took guards as hostages. But after a time, one of the hostages, Paul Madigan, convinced the men to surrender. Madigan would go on to be the prison's warden. In September, John Bayless attempted to escape into the San Francisco Bay, only to turn around when he realized the water was just too cold. Dude, that is, I hate, like, I'm sure the water was cold, but I mean, was it so cold that you'd rather go back to prison? I think he just realized that that's a long way to swim in that cold of water. You know, San Francisco, yeah, it's on the West Coast in California. Um, when I was there, it felt like it, it's like a steady 70-ish degrees for the whole time, all the time. I don't know if it's all the time, but when I was there for the whole week, it was 70 degrees. And I feel like the water, from what I've read, can be turbulent and there's a lot of like rifts and things. But then also, it's not warm water. And one thing, too, is, I mean, it was September, so it was early. It was like early enough in the fall, but it's still late enough that it was probably getting to that point where it was getting colder. That's sad when you think about it. He's probably sitting in the cell thinking, man, I should have just kept going. I guess you could say he uh, had some cold feet. <laughs> Gosh, Jason. <laughs> that's a that's a dad joke right there. It was good, though. <laughs> Another two attempts took place in 1943. One in April and one in August. The one in April consisted of four men yet again taking hostages. They made their way to the shoreline, and one of the hostages was able to alert the guards. And while attempting to swim away from the island, two of the men were shot. James Borman was hit and sank, never to be seen again. Floyd Hamilton, also wounded, he hid in a cave on the shoreline for like two days before making his way back up to the prison. The other two, Harold Brest and Fred Hunter, were captured on the shoreline. In August, Huron Ted escaped laundry duty was captured on the shoreline. What a name. Huron. But they nicknamed him Ted. It's easier just to say Ted. <laughs> I wonder if he's related to Lord Huron, the artist. Maybe. In July of 1945, Alcatraz was cleaning army laundry. And when a man by the name of John Giles slowly over time stole piece by piece of an army uniform. So he, he put on this uniform that he, he collected piece by piece. He boarded a ship that was dropping off military uniforms. And when the ship docked on Angel Island... Instead of San Francisco, he was quickly apprehended and taken back. But of all the escape attempts, that one feels like the closest to something that would have got him off the island. I mean, if you think about it, 
he stole over time. He stole this uniform piece by piece by piece. And then he put on an army uniform of all the things you could have done. Military is dropping off uniforms. There's guys on the ship wearing uniforms. This guy, again, piece by piece, stole this, stole a full army uniform. Imagine that you just walk onto the ship wearing uniform like the other people. If they had docked at San Francisco, we might be talking about him instead of these other guys. It's kind of scary how easily he was able to get away with that. Yeah, you'd think a full uniform going missing. But again, it's 1945. World War II is taking place. There's a lot of things happening. Maybe that was just part of it. So this next one is a pretty bloody one. Um, and this one's actually called the Battle of Alcatraz. So essentially six inmates, they take control of the cell house by overpowering the guards and taking them hostage. So they were able to get their hands on weapons. And unfortunately for them, they realized no one had the key to the prison yard to escape. So after some time, three of the men, Sam Shockley, Moran Thompson, and Clarence Carnes, they just returned to their cells. While the other three were either dead or still fighting. So Bernard Coy, Joe Kretzer, and Marvin Hubbard. U.S. Marines are called to assist, and they actually shoot D-Block with artillery. And in the ensuing firefight, Coy, Kretzer, and Hubbard are killed by shrapnel and or, or gunfire. So in the aftermath, it, it's found that Kretzer essentially executed one of the hostages, shooting and wounding others. I think in all, two officers were killed, in the ordeal during the trial it's found that Shockley and Thompson encouraged Kretzer to kill the officers. So they get the death penalty and they end up facing the gas chamber in San Quentin. Carnes gets a second life sentence. And if you want to hear more about the battle of Alcatraz, there's actually probably enough here for a full episode, which of course is not the point of today's podcast, but the book escaping Alcatraz has a whole chapter dedicated to this with pictures of the event and the aftermath. So now, 10 years go by before another escape attempt occurs, and it was fairly weak compared to the Battle of Alcatraz. Basically, a man by the name of Floyd Wilson, he hides behind some big rocks for a few hours by the dock before he's found, and he surrenders without any problems. <laughs> it sounds like such a kid thing to do. Like, I mean, when you think about it, your kid plays hide-and-seek, he goes hides behind a rock. Like, like, there's not really even like a hiding spot, you know? It's like he didn't even try. Well, it's funny, too, because there were so many attempts. Like, it felt like year after year, a couple in the same year. And then the Battle of Alcatraz happened. The people that tried to escape, a couple of them were executed. And so 10 years go by. I wonder if it was just kind of like, okay, let's not attempt anything crazy because we know they're going to try to execute us. So this guy's like, I'm going to leave. But then he realizes, what am I actually going to do? So he just kind of hides out for a couple hours and then gets caught. He's like, okay, guys, I'm done. I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So two years later, in 1958, two men attempt to escape while working garbage duty. So they overpower the guard near them, and they attempt to make a swim for it. Clyde Johnson is captured quickly, but Aaron Burgett slips away. So two weeks later, his body is found floating in San Francisco Bay. So just keep that in mind, because... The bay might seem like it's something easy to traverse, but like people died in this in this bay trying to escape multiple times. Okay, so that was a lot. But the point of mentioning all these escape attempts is twofold. First, I want to point out there's a history, and I mean a big history, of escape attempts from Alcatraz. We just went through like 12 attempts. It took place over the course of 20-ish years. So there's motivation, but also I think there's these attempts lend to examples of 
what to do, and more importantly, what not to do. Yeah, definitely what not to do. Taking guards apparently lands you with the whole military coming and shooting artillery shells into the prison. Yeah, exactly. Or you end up executed at San Quentin. Yeah, but either way, we I think we learn most out of everything is that none of these have been successful. Yeah, exactly. So from these, you learn that you need time. If there's not sufficient enough time for a head start, you're probably doomed. Also, the water is treacherous. It's cold. You need a raft. You need life vests. And probably should get into the water in the summer when it's not cold. And not get cold feet. <laughs> yeah, don't get cold feet. One last thing to mention. I, I said there were 14 escapes, escape attempts from Alcatraz. We just mentioned 12. So the main story covers number 13, but the 14th actually takes place about six months after the big one. So John Paul Scott and Daryl Parker, they attempt to make the swim to San Francisco in December of 1962. They didn't learn the cold water lesson, apparently. So Parker is found clinging to some rocks nearby the island. And Scott is actually found beneath the Golden Gate Bridge, clinging to life, suffering from hypothermia. So after his hospital visit, he gets sent back to Alcatraz. So I guess it's not just cold feet. I guess the water here is cold enough to actually give you hypothermia. Yeah, it's definitely cold enough that it's a problem. I'm just thinking like a, a swim pool, you know, when you first dip your feet in the swim pool, it's cold. I mean, obviously, it sounds like the water's a tad bit colder than that. It's not just cold, too. There's also the current that is is really fighting all these guys. So the current is constantly pushing and pushing and pushing. And so, like, it's pushing out to sea through the bay. And the Golden Gate Bridge is like that last little gate that ends to the ocean. So not only was this guy found here, but I think... Later, when we talk about the raft, pieces of the raft are found here as well, because that's where the the current pushes. Okay, so let's get into who the main characters are here. The main protagonists, we have Frank Morris, John Anglin, Clarence Anglin, and then finally, Alan West. Not to be confused with Batman, that's Adam West. I was like, man, I'm like, I, I recognize what Alan West, what am I? And then I realized, I'm like, it's not Bat, it's not Batman. Adam West is Batman. Oh, dude, I was actually thinking of Alan West. I was thinking the same thing when you said that. I'm like, why does that name sound so familiar? Yeah, Adam West. So Batman's in prison. <laughs> Batman was not in prison because his name is Alan West. <laughs> <laughs> so first, Frank Morris was considered the brains of the operation. He apparently ranked in the top 2% of people based on his IQ. So he was orphaned young and spent time in foster homes. So he was arrested for his first crime at the age of 13. So he bounced from crime to crime. And after serving a sentence for bank robbery at Louisiana State Penitentiary, he made his first escape. So once he was recaptured, he was sent to Alcatraz in January of 1960. So brothers John and Clarence England, um, as kids, they worked farms as far south as Tampa and as far north as Michigan. So apparently they were really skilled swimmers. And there were times when they swam in the icy waters of Lake Michigan as kids. So in the 1950s, the brothers got into a bank robbery and ended up with 35-year sentences. So they served time at Leavenworth, Florida State, and Atlanta Penitentiary. After some failed prison attempts, John was sent to Alcatraz in October of 1960, and then Clarence in January of 61. Lastly, Alan West, who, like Frank Morris, bounced around from crime to crime, 
eventually landed a long sentence for car theft, spent time in Florida State and Atlanta. After multiple escape attempts, he was transferred to Alcatraz in 1957. So these guys knew each other to some extent, bouncing around the same prison systems. And, and once all together at Alcatraz, they began planning their escape. So now we're, we're going to really get into the timeline of what happened. And I want to take a second to say a lot of this information comes from Alan West. I know I mentioned this before, and if you're familiar with the story or even saw Escape from Alcatraz, you know that Alan West was left behind. So he was as much a part of this escape as the rest of the team, but he didn't make it out of the cell that night. They were they executed the escape. So a lot of this information comes from kind of a firsthand telling of all the things leading up to the escape. A lot of what's ahead is coming straight from the source. It's coming straight from Alan West. So in December of 1960, they discovered Doc Barker's hacksaw blades. Remember earlier, Doc Barker, he was killed in the 1939 jailbreak attempt. Oh, yeah. So in that attempt, he had hacksawed through flat iron bars. So these blades are kind of the launching point of this whole escape plan. A man by the name of Joe Carnes, who was, I believe, involved early on, but backed out before things really got going. He recalled getting these hacksaw blades in the early 1950s. He said that an unnamed inmate told him that he would distract a guard and while doing so to drop a string with curls and loops down the door jam. So Carnes does so. He pulls up this pouch and inside are these hacksaw blades. Dude, that is... Yeah, it's pretty wild, isn't it? Yeah, that is crazy, man. This is 1939. These blades have been there forever collecting rust. Well, that's the thing is they were like new when they pulled them up. They said they they had been preserved really well just sitting down this door jam. Wow. So now they have these hacksaw blades, and, and Alan West is assigned to paint the cells in C-Block. And while assigned, he, he found this ventilator above C-Block, so one of the eight that were no longer in use. And they were said to have been sealed, but this one wasn't. Supposedly, they had taken damage during the Battle of Alcatraz and were all sealed and capped with concrete. So... As of now, two things have happened. They have these hacksaw blades, and they also know that the ventilation system isn't quite as secured as previously thought. So these four guys were all assigned and, and living on four cells at the top of B-Block. So kind of similar to a neighborhood street with odds and evens on either side. So before I say all this, it took me a second to really figure out who was where because they move around quite a bit here, but I'm going to run through this really quickly. In July of 1961, John was in... 150. West was in 152, and Clarence was in 154. With Morris, his cell was 138. So they basically play musical cells, and by September, they get shifted so that Frank Morris is in cell 138 next to Alan West, who is in cell 140. John England in cell 150, right next door to his brother Clarence, in 152. So in addition to this, in 1961, four-man tables were added to the mess hall. The idea was that instead of 10 men who potentially don't get along, smaller groups of men who do get along have less of a chance of like starting a fight in the mess hall. So they, they were able to plot and plan without risk of being overheard. They sat at a table by themselves, just them four. What's crazy to me is these guys requested to be on B-Block. and I found it interesting that they were able to request and then get the cells that they wanted um, all next to each other. You would think a prison would be much more strict about that, but I guess that goes to show what they thought of Alcatraz and how tough it was to escape. 
But also I think that lends credence to the mentality of what the warden thought. Let them live together and eat together so you weren't mingling prisoners who were likely to start a fight. So now Morris is assigned to the brush shop, which I guess is a sought-after gig. They could earn credits towards reduced sentence, but also pay. So in the brush shop, Morris had access to an adhesive called Rimwells with water-resistant properties. But more importantly, he was earning an income, which allowed him to acquire things they might need to break out. In July of 1961, Clarence managed to start his job as a barber, where he was able to collect human hair, later to be used for the dummies, left overnight in their cells. So he cuffed the bottom of his pants and let the hair collect there. And he would later collect this hair in his cell and, and hide it. It's kind of disgusting when you think about it. It is very gross. So at this point, they're plotting and planning. They have the blades. They know the vent is not sealed like previously thought. Morris is getting cash for additional supplies. And of course, Clarence's access to human hair. So next was, how do we get out of our cells? At the back of the cell was a small vent system that led to a utility corridor, which gave them access to the top of B block. So in order to get through the cells, West acquired a star drill, which is basically a sharp drill-like bit that you place against the wall and tap it, creating holes around the vent, making the space large enough to squeeze through. And also they use some spoons to carve away the concrete. So this drill bit comes from a guy named Benny Rayborn who had it in his possession for something like seven years. After discovering two had been shipped, but only one was in his inventory. They also used the hacksaw blades that were discovered earlier to get through the metal in the wall. I'm guessing like rebar style metal bars within the concrete. It's kind of crazy to think that they used spoons to get through concrete. Yeah. From what I, from what I read, they like pushed it against the vent and like they were able to like push it a certain way when it like scraped away some of that. Um, concrete so I'm not sure if it was like Shawshank where you just like chiseled away over time or more just like they found where they could pop stuff out in weak spots they mostly used that drill bit to like knock out a a big enough space um, to fit their bodies through and what's crazy about it is they worked on this over time and they had to push it put it in put it pull it out put it in just because it was a door that they couldn't have the guards see but they had to make it big enough around the vent to go back and forth. So they get all these pieces and slowly over time, they begin chipping away at the concrete around their vents and their cells. So Morris requests and receives magazines, popular science, popular mechanics, mechanics illustrated and science digest. So he used articles from these magazines to get specs on inflatable life vest, inflatable inner tubes and strengths and weaknesses of different designs. So from these, he was able to build out what he needed and the specs to safely make vests and more importantly, a life raft. This just proves to show that knowledge is power. You know, this guy's got such a high IQ. You know, he could have done something different with his life and studies in prison trying to figure out how to get out. Yeah, and that's the thing. I, when you have access, I mean, he knew what he was looking for. He knew what he wanted. He had the money to do it. And pulling all this information in with the high IQ that he had, he knew how to execute it, which is pretty wild. On November 9th, 1961, John purchased art supplies. So he and Clarence made many oil paintings and art in their cells. They stored large amounts of flesh-toned oil paint that they used to paint the dummies left in their cells. They spent quite a bit of time practicing carving soap bars. So they were trying to figure out how to manipulate soap bars 
and get comfortable and learn how to make basically human figures out of these soap bars. And so they use these soap bars to mold the faces of the dummy, the flesh colored paint to paint the dummies. And, and on top of that, the hair that was collected from the barbershop to create the hair. In April of 1962, Morris bought a concertina, which if you're unfamiliar is similar to like an accordion, which was used to blow up the inflatables. Oh, wow. No, I did not know what a concertina was. <laughs> That's interesting. So it's an instrument. Yeah. So around this time in April of 1962, they had finished carving out the ventilation sections at the back of their cells. And when looking at the back of the cell, you would see the vent. But in reality, a section larger than the vent had been cut. So it was basically a fake insert that could be pulled out for easy access to the corridor behind it. And so it was around this time that Alan West volunteered to clean and paint the top of B Block. It had been neglected for a long time, so there was a lot of debris and junk up there. He's able to get up there. He basically is unsupervised, inspects the vent above B Block, and realizes it's, it's it too is not capped with concrete. So now he's tasked with cleaning the top of B Block and painting it. So once he's up there, he takes a broom and intentionally makes a huge mess pushing the debris and dust over the edge of the cells below. So inmates complain about all this junk falling on their cells, and he requests to hang up blankets to block the debris from falling down, but also it concealed the area from visibility. Once these are up, he further inspects the ventilator and sees the bolts holding it in place, and they look like they can be pulled out. But, he, but he basically, they need some heavier equipment. So Wes steals a motor from a vacuum cleaner, Morris and the Anglins use it to knock out these bolts that hold the ventilator to the roof. And once they're loose, they let it rest in place so they can be able to take it out without needing heavy equipment. They pull it out by hand at that point. So they end up creating this little workshop on top of B Block. It's hidden away and easily accessible from the corridor behind their cells. And they get to work. John Anglin starts collecting these big raincoats. I guess they were a super common on Alcatraz. And he would get them from the yard when, when convicts would take them off so they would smuggle these back, cut them up into manageable pieces, and then glue and sew them together, making life vests, but also the inner tube for the raft. How do these uh, people not notice that all these raincoats are going missing? Well, from what I from what I read, it seemed like everyone had them, and they would get misplaced, or like they would set them down in the yard, forget about them, and they would just make off with them. Um, everyone had raincoats, and so they were able just to kind of like grab them and i guess the convicts that lost them probably just assumed they were lost i I don't know but they they stole like 40 raincoats oh my gosh how does that go missing like that's crazy yeah so remember when i mentioned those magazines before so they used the dimensions and details from those magazines to build these pieces of the raft and the vest basically right to spec they also built wooden paddles to go along with the raft so at this point they had created a raft they created a life vest, and they had the concertina to blow up the rafts and vests. And they also had the vacuum engine to knock these loose vents out. So they have all the pieces and everything. Basically, they're ready for their escape. So now we're going to talk about the night of June 11th into the morning of June 12th. From everything I saw at this point, there were a lot of prisoners in the know. So when it comes to the escape, a lot of these guys knew what was going on. Uh, this The word was really starting to get around. There was a level of excitement that night. So based on some of the inmates' testimonials, they talked about what they were expecting to happen that night. 
There were accounts at 5 p.m., which was basically when they had to be in their cells by. Account at 8, and then another account at 9.30, which was lights out. So from what I read, once all the prisoners were in their cells at 5, things really quieted down, and no one was coming or going from their cells. So most nights from 5.30 to 9.30, they would be on top of B-Block working. So the night of June 11th, after lights out and the 9.30 count was completed, there was a loud thud on the roof, presumably the group making their escape. So all the prisoners start yelling and making noise in hopes of obscuring the sound of the men escaping. It was successful as the guards didn't catch on to it. So I have to say, man, I would want these, <laughs> it's probably terrible thing to say, but all these inmates that are not escaping are helping like these four guys escape. Like, those are some really good friends. I mean, when you think about it, I'd be pissed at somebody else escaping while I'm stuck in a prison cell. Like, I would, I mean, then again, they probably threatened to kill him if they did say anything. I think it's less that and more that they are all, it's kind of like us against them in this in this scenario. And they know Aquatraz is pretty much inescapable. They know that it's so hard to do it. And I think it really comes down to like us against them. If someone's going to escape, we're going to help them escape because they said we can't do it, but these guys are doing it. I think it's more of that and less like, I mean, yeah, they probably would like to be involved, but also they might be serving two, three, four years and they're not going to, they don't need to escape, you know? That's true. Although this was a, this was the prison that people were sent to when, you know, all the other prisons didn't hold them. True. That's true. Yeah, exactly. This is where people went when people try to escape a lot. But that also probably just lends, lends credence to the fact that if someone's going to try to escape, we're going to help them. And maybe that's just part of it. According to West's official FBI statement, Clarence and Morris were out of their cells by 7 p.m. They missed the 8 p.m. count. Morris came down at 8.45 to tell West the bars were removed and out of the way. And that if they could get to the top of the ventilator by 9.30... Tonight would be the night. So West had cracked his ventilator shaft and it was repaired with a little cement. So when Clarence came down to tell him that they could see the moon and that they had gotten through the roof ventilator around 922, West couldn't break through the patch job they had done on the cracked escape route in the back of his cell. Clarence tried to help, but after a short time, he left. By 930, Morris comes down with his dummy and places it in his bed and also a metal bar given to West to help break through his cell. And I'm kind of confused here because wouldn't the dummy need to be in place for the APM count? I didn't re really read anywhere that this wasn't or was performed. So with Morris being out of the cell at 7 to 8.45 and the dummy coming back at 9.30, I don't understand what happened to the APM count. This just seems kind of off there. I, I think I have an explanation here shortly, and I'll get to that. But according to his FBI statement, this time this this was the timeline. So Morris leaves to get Clarence and it helps get through West's cell and they don't come back. West finally breaks through at like 1:45. He gets up to the top of B block and the three men are nowhere to be found. The raft is gone. And then also a hundred feet of heavy electrical cable that they had up there was also gone. So West goes all the way to the roof with his life vest, looks over the wall, doesn't see him. And they had left him. I would be so mad. Man, I would be so mad if they, like, sat there and just left me. Like, you finally get up there after all this hard work and 
come to find out like your guys left you like oh my gosh man yeah he was as big a part of this as these guys were and so it's you would imagine that all the stuff leading up to this he would be very frustrated and, and i don't know where i heard this or read this but i didn't see this when i was reading the book or when i was looking at articles but i thought somewhere i'd seen where people had recorded or heard him like being loud or upset or crying at the fact that he missed the escape. But again, I, I didn't see that anywhere here. I can't imagine being as, as far along as these guys are. And he, he breaks his door to this ventilator shaft. They fix it. And that basically causes him to lose out or miss out on the greatest escape in human history. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel bad for the guy. I'd probably be crying too. At the same time, though, 100 foot, I wonder if he couldn't just scale the wall. I don't know. I guess the wall is probably more than 100 feet tall. I mean, I probably would have swam at that point in time. Yeah, uh, yeah, you think he'd just go for it? I mean, I would have. You got that far. You're finally out of the... I mean, you're so close to being out of there, you know? Yeah, but 100 feet, I mean, that's a long way. The rope, or the, the electrical wire, we'll talk about it here later during the investigation, but... They find that at the bottom, at the base of the wall, I think. And so, like, he can't use it to climb down. So, 100 feet's a long way. He can't make that jump. Um, but on top of that, he does, also doesn't have the... I don't think he has the the accordion, the concertina, to, like, blow it up either. So, he has an uninflated life raft. And the water's dangerous. There's talks of sharks in the water. There's the rift. There, there's it, it gets cold. I mean, it's June, so it might not be that cold. Well, they would have the raft, so his life vest he couldn't blow up. Exactly. So he would just be kind of at that point. It's it's just too late, I think, for him. And I mean, he decided that it was too late, and he went back to his cell. Wow, that's so sad. That would suck. Well, it might not be that sad because some people think that they didn't make it, that they drowned in the water, that they that they died that night, um, which is highly plausible i mean we'll get into some theories here and part two it is possible that they drowned that night and maybe alan west maybe his cell and his little door that they created being cemented closed maybe that saved his life i mean we'll never really know because this is still considered an unsolved mystery big old maybe that or the guys that escaped actually escaped and they're sitting in fiji with uh cocktails yeah, they're yeah maybe they're in Fiji living it up. I don't know. We'll get again. We'll get into some theories here as to what might have happened to them. They've spent a lot of time, a lot of money. And the FBI has really been involved. They could either be in Fiji sipping mai tais, or they're in the ocean somewhere off the San Francisco Bay. You know, it kind of makes you wonder how many bodies are in that bay. <laughs> so you know, California is a big state, and then you have all this. You know, people trying to get out of Alcatraz, the body count in that coast, I bet, is pretty high. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, from all the counts, there's also sharks in that area. Maybe the bodies have been eaten. The evidence is, is, is hard because also from all the things that I read, things that fall into the bay or people that end up in the bay, they don't stay in the bay. Their bodies wash down shore. They end up into the ocean. We talked about that earlier. One of the escapees was clinging to life under the Golden Gate Bridge, almost swept out the sea. I'm sure that that coast and that bay has claimed quite a few lives. It's possible that these guys, they escaped and then died in the water, and then we never found their bodies because they were swept out to sea. 
So there's a lot of different things at, at, at play here. So this actually ends part one of the men who escaped Alcatraz. I, again, realized that there was just too much here. And based on our schedule and our recording time, we decided this definitely needed to be a two-parter. The reason we ended where we did was because the rest of what we have is all based on theory. Um, but everything up until this point, we have a first-hand account that transpired. So part two is going to be our theories, our the aftermath. There was a huge search that, that took place. And then we're going to give our own opinion as to what we think happened to these guys. So thanks again for listening to The Anecdotalist. We appreciate every listener that we get. Please tune in next week for The Men Who Escaped Alcatraz Part 2, where we talk about theories, the aftermath, and everything me and Jason think happened on the night of June 11th, 1962.